I invite you this morning to take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We have embarked on a a series within a series, so to speak, in the midst of our large undertaking, preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. We have also picked up this uh, shorter series through the first 25 chapters of John 15, and we've been dealing with this theme, this subject of abiding in Christ, and don't uh, go to John 15 every Lord's Day, but... As we finish major sections of 1 Corinthians and come to natural divisions in the text, every month or so we've taken a Sunday to turn to John 15 and consider a few verses from this section. And this morning, uh, we're going to pick up at verse 9. But since we have taken a little bit of a, a break in between these messages, let me just remind you that we've already seen, as we think about this theme of abiding in Christ, we've already seen... This idea, this this theme, this message that the Lord Jesus is communicating to his people as he is talking with them about the nature of genuine salvation. This is the last words of our Lord to his disciples during his earthly ministry. Shortly after he finishes this discourse, he will be led away, he will be arrested, he will be tried by night, he will be condemned under a civil and a religious trial, and he will be sentenced to crucifixion. And it is in these final moments with his disciples that our Lord chooses as his subject true conversion, true salvation. Perhaps there is nothing more important for a sinner to know, yea, even a Christian to know, than what it means to be saved. And he has, for the first eight verses, delivered these teachings in a way that is very common for him to teach. That is by way of a parable. And he's picked up this parable of the vine and the branches. And we've seen from this parable that a key mark of a true disciple is that they will bear fruit. Why will they bear fruit? Because the Father prunes the vine. He takes away dead branches He gathers them up, he sends them away to be burned, but the true branches that bear fruit, he prunes them and nourishes them and cares for them so that they bring forth even more fruit. So we've seen what it means here to abide in the vine, the the true vine and the living vine. And now, when we come to verse 9, our Lord transitions a bit away from this parable of the vine, but he's still talking about the same subject, genuine salvation. And, And let me just say... Genuine salvation is abiding in Christ. What does it mean to be saved? It means that you are one who finds your existence and your identity and the source of your life in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity, listen to me, is not just a religion of beliefs. It is a religion of belief that produces experience. Amen. If you don't have an experiential Christianity, you don't have Christianity. We don't worship experiences, nor do we consider our experiences to be the sum substance of our religion, but it is part of it. And we'll see that in our Lord's verses today, in verses 9 through 11. And I want us to focus in on this idea of abiding in the love of Christ. Abiding in the love of Christ. John 15, beginning at verse 9, these are the words of God. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. What our Lord is demonstrating to us in these verses 
is that a true disciple is marked by love. Inasmuch as a true disciple is marked by orthodox theology, uh, by the fruit of good works, he is marked by a real, genuine, heartfelt, divine love. There is indeed a a false Christianity that is being preached in these days uh, that says it doesn't matter how you live so long as you have the right heart attitude. Perhaps you've encountered that. It doesn't matter uh, if you actually dress modestly so long as you have a modest heart, right? That's kind of the the idea behind that. Well, the the problem with that uh, is that if you have the right heart attitude, it will manifest itself in the way you live your life. It will. This is a a false Christianity that claims to be based on love, but true love cannot be severed from the necessary actions it produces. In other words, love is not just lip service. It's not just mushy-gushy emotional platitudes that are so easy to say but aren't followed by action. But there's another kind of Christianity that's equally as false, that places all of the emphasis on the externals. Uh, It completely disregards the attitude of the heart. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't really matter what you think. It really doesn't even matter what you believe so long as you do the right things. As long as you check the boxes of conformity. You, you, you dress right, you, you act right, you don't listen to that, you do watch that, you read this, you don't read that. You, you know what I'm talking about. That kind of Christianity doesn't produce true disciples. It produces Pharisees. Who are, are washed on the outside, but inside they are dirty tombs full of dead men's bones. I've said it to you before. There are many things and many programs and many philosophies that can change your behavior, can change the way you act, can change what you do, but only Christ can change who you are. You need an identity change. Mm -hmm. So as Jesus will now show us, two of the definite fruits that are produced in true disciples of Christ are a heart that loves God and a joy that finds its chief pleasure in God. The love that we are to have as Christians is not just emotion, but it's not less than emotion. I I know we've been flooded and inundated by emotionalism, but I'm afraid that some preachers have swung the pendulum to the point to where they're almost afraid of love. And, and you'll, you'll hear them say very bold, unqualified statements like, love is just an act of the will. That's what love is. Is love an act of the will? Absolutely. It is an act of the will. But it's not just an act of the will. So when Jesus commands us to be characterized by love, and, and when, he, when He talks about this love that we're to have for one another, he, He's insinuating and, and really objectively preaching and teaching that we must have a certain emotional outlook and disposition towards one another. How, how do we do that? Have you ever tried to muster up emotions? Yes, you have. And so you know how difficult that is, right? Mm-hmm. When you're angry and you're trying to force yourself not to be angry, when you're trying to force yourself to be happy, it doesn't work so well, does it? So, so how are we going to obey this command of our Lord to love, to have an emotional disposition? Let's submit to you that it's through humbling ourselves and yielding to the influence of His Spirit as it works within us and produces these things in us. Amen. What is one of the fruits of the Spirit? Is it not love? <laughs> so to have true evangelical Christ-commanded, Christ-approved love, you need the Spirit of God in you, at work in you, if you're going to obey this text. So keep that in mind as we go through 
these verses. In fact, genuine biblical love is so essential to Christianity that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. That's pretty serious. You don't love Christ? Well then God damn you, Paul says. 1 John 4 and verse 8, He that loveth not, knoweth not God. For God is love. Listen, you don't have to know Calvin's Institutes to be a Christian. You don't have to know the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith to be a Christian. But if you don't know love, you're not a Christian. And I'm far more confident in the faith of someone who doesn't know those aforementioned things and hasn't read all the big thick books and hasn't been a, a, a multi-decade scholar of systematic theology, but they, boy, they, they have love for one another. That's the kind of faith that gets you to heaven. That's the kind of Christianity that perseveres. So the text before us will explain how the fruit of love relates to a life of obedience and a fullness of joy. What do those things have to do with each other? Love, obedience, and joy. Well, let me give you a simple outline to these verses. There's three things I want you to see. Three verses. How convenient. Number one, verse nine, I want you to see that this love, abiding in the love of Christ, that kind of love, Number one is exemplified in the Trinity. Exemplified in the Trinity. Notice what our Lord says in verse 9. He says, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. The relationship between the Father and the Son is a model for our relationship with the Son and with each other. So the way the Father relates to the Son, the way Christ relates to the Father, is the way we are supposed to relate to Jesus and the way we are supposed to relate to one another. The Father loves Christ in the same way that Christ loves us. So what becomes the all-important question then? How has the Father loved the Son? In what ways has the Father loved the Son? Well, in John 17 and verse 24, Jesus says, speaking to his father in prayer, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. And the love of the father for the son is an eternal love that manifested itself to us in the incarnation. One of the very few times we audibly hear the voice of the Father in the Bible is when He speaks concerning His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He says, This is my beloved Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What is that? The the pleasure of God. So this, this love He has for His Son, how does it manifest? What, what is it rooted in? What does it produce? It produces joy in the heart of God Himself. The Bible tells us God is love. But in order for that to be true, God must have an object to love. Think about that for a moment. How can something be love if it has nothing to love? So... You tell me, before the foundation of the world, before there was a creation, before there was a a human being that that lived on this vast earth, who did God love? He he did not become love when he created man. He was loved before the foundation of the world. Well, John tells us in John 17, he loved himself. The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father. The the Spirit loved the Father and the Son. You see, there was this 
holy Trinitarian love, a perfect, eternal love that characterized God before the foundation of the world. And this love was not merely an emotional platitude. It was, it was followed by action. What, what action? What, what, what was the expression? What, what was the, the, the product of God's love for Himself, of the, the Father's love for the Son? He gave Him a gift. Amen. Do, do you give gifts to people that you love? Mm-hmm. I hope so. But what gift did the Father give to the Son before the foundation of the world? He gave Him the gift of a people who would forever be recipients and reciprocate that same divine love. Next time you're tempted to feel down and out, think of yourself as a love gift from God the Father to God the Son. Jesus, I love you so much, I'm going to give you a people for your own name. You were given to the Lord Jesus Christ as a love gift from the Father to the Son. Well, how did how did the Son reciprocate that love to the Father? He took that gift. It's kind of like, you know, you, you find an old raggedy doll, you know, and you give it to a little girl and it's just, just torn and beat down, seen its better days, and she looks at it and she goes, Oh, it's so beautiful. Right? Well, that's kind of how you looked. Here's your love gift, Jesus. It's this, it's this sack of fallen, sinful, wretched humanity. And he, he took it and he said, it's so beautiful. Because he saw what he was going to do with that gift. Because he reciprocated his love to the Father by going into the world and shedding his blood and dying for that gift to perfect it in beauty and holiness. Ephesians 5, that he might present unto himself a glorious church without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, or any such thing. So Christ's love for the Father was seen in his willingness to go and to lay down his life and to purify and sanctify the love gift that the Father had given him. Where does the Holy Spirit come into all of this? How does he reciprocate his love for the Father and the Son? He does so by going into the world after the, early before and after, but, but theologically, redemptively, after the accomplishment of Christ, goes into the world and applies the saving benefits of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ individually to the hearts of all of his people. What a loving thing to do. I'm simply trying to explain to you and express to you that your salvation is rooted and grounded in the love that God has first and foremost for himself. Hold your place in John 15 and go with me to Ephesians chapter 1 to a very familiar portion of Scripture. Because now what I want to do is I want to show you how we come to partake of and reciprocate our love for the Trinity, for the blessed three persons of the Godhead. Ephesians 1, notice in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. There's the giving of the gift. Mm -hmm. The the first He refers to God the Father. The second He refers to God the Son. So according as the Father chose us in the Son before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. God bestowed His eternal Trinitarian love upon us so that we would one day stand before Him in love. 
It is in the Trinitarian love of God for Himself that we are motivated and given a model of the love that we are to have before Him. Never overlook this blessedly beautiful truth that before the foundation of the world, God loved Himself. If the Father did not love the Son and the Son did not love the Father, they would have never loved you and you would have never loved Him. But because the Father did love the Son and because that love was manifested and demonstrated in this gift that He gave Him and because the Son did love the Father and because that love was demonstrated in His saving death upon Calvary's cross and because the Spirit loved the Father and the Son, and because His love was demonstrated in going into the world and regenerating and indwelling and filling all of God's people, we enter in, are brought in to that love. To that love. It's a bit of a provocative statement, but it's very true. For whom did Christ die. And before you rush and say the elect, let me give you an answer that's even foremost. Christ died for the Father. The Son died for the Father. On the cross of Calvary, He was not propitiating the wrath of the devil. And you say, well, what about me? Jesus died for me. He did die for you, but only because, first and foremost, He loved the Father. His love for you is rooted in that eternal Trinitarian love between Him and the Father. In the same way, no mother will ever love her children more than if she loves her husband first. No father will ever be a better provider and protector of his home unless he loves his wife first. I'm thankful this morning. I'm glad this morning that before I ever existed and before God's love was ever bestowed upon me, he already was love in and of himself. Amen. What else does this tell us? That we are to love God the way Christ And the Father have a love for one another. It tells us not only that this love is eternal, but that this love is independent and immutable. God the Father did not love God the Son because of what God the Son would do, but what God the Son did was a result of the love. Does that make sense to you? God doesn't love you because of anything that you can provide for Him or do for Him or add to His glory. Those things that you do are a result of already having that love. And Christ commended His love toward you in that while you were yet a sinner, He died for you. Aren't you glad he, he didn't wait around for you to love him back? <laughs> Aren't you glad that when you had zero desire and no affection for him, he pursued you mm-hmm. with love? It wasn't, it wasn't the law that pursued you. Right. It was the law that condemned you. Right. It wasn't the law that made you love him. I pray to God it's his, your love for Him that now makes you love the law. Right. Amen. But it wasn't the law that caused the love within you. It wasn't the threat of condemnation that made you want to come after Him. And w- w- the message that, that brought you to Christ was not, if you don't love me, you're going to hell. That wasn't the message that brought you to Christ. It was loving Merciful grace that said, You who are a sinner, I love you and desire to save you, to cleanse you, to make you righteous and positionally holy, personally holy. He's made you his own and he regards you with a peculiar satisfaction. 
because He has put His own comeliness within you. The, the, follow, follow this. The Father loves the Son. What does the Son do when He saves you? Conforms you to His image. Right. Makes you like that thing which is the most supreme object of divine love itself. And then Jesus says to us in John 15, Continue in my love. In this love. A true disciple is one who abides in the eternal Trinitarian love that comes to us from God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to abide in the love of Christ. May we never let some prosperity preacher cheapen the love of God to some empty emotional experience and rob us of the precious truth that the God of heaven and earth loves us. He loves you. He loves you. Secondly, notice in verse 10, I want you to see that this love, and I, I was very careful with the words that I, I used. This love is experienced through obedience. It's experienced through obedience. Perhaps you're, you're saying, well, brother, I, I, I agree with what you're saying about this immutable unconditional, sovereign, eternal love, what do you mean experience through obedience? Doesn't that contradict everything that you just said? Well, notice what Jesus says in verse 10. He tells us to continue in this love, but then he, then he starts off verse 10 with this very precarious word, if. He introduces a conditional statement. If you keep my commandments... Ye shall abide in my love. Mm-hmm. Now this tells, us, this tells us a few things. It tells us that there is, there must be a distinction between actually and really being the object of divine love and experiencing divine love. Because verse 10 leaves us with no other exegetical conclusion than to say, if you are not obeying the commandments of Christ, you're not experiencing the love of Christ. But we just said that the love of Christ for you has nothing to do initially with your obedience. Okay, so how do we make sense of this? Well, before we make sense of this, let me say this to you. There is absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to feel and experience the love of God. Is it wrong for children to long for the embrace of their earthly father? Would we rebuke a child who wants to be held by his mother and say, no, you just need to have an intellectual knowledge that she loves you. You don't need to feel her embrace. Oh, of course not. It's natural. It's normal. In fact, there's something wrong if you have no desire to feel the embrace of your father. I hope, I hope you want, I hope you, you Christian who knows theologically that God loves you, I hope you're sitting here saying, yes, I know it, I want to feel it. I want to experience it, his embrace. Okay, how do we do that? Let's make sense of verse 10. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. The love of God is validated in our lives and experienced through obedience. Obedience is not a means through which we earn or secure the love of God. Could never be. Rather, it is through obedience that we stay conscious and aware of God's love for us. J.C. Ryle said, the man who makes conscience of diligently observing Christ's precepts is the man who shall continually enjoy a sense of Christ's love in his soul. When we feel and sense his love for us, it is when we are most following after his word to us. 
I, I want to be very clear because I, I really don't want anyone to walk away thinking that your obedience will cause God to love you more or your disobedience will cause Him to love you less. The love of God is to you in Christ perfect, immutable. It doesn't change. Mm-hmm. But your obedience, though it doesn't make God love you any more, and though your disobedience does not make God love you any less, your obedience is the means through which the love of God not only becomes an objective reality, but a felt reality. When a child disobeys his father, his father does not love him any less. But disobedience severs the loving communion that they have between one another. That's a good thing, by the way. It's a good thing that disobedience causes us to feel a severance in our communion. That's called your conscience, by the way. God has given that to you for an indicator, for a warning, for, for, for your own good. I'm glad that naturally God gives husbands and wives a similar sort of indicator. And, and we, we men need it, right? You, you don't know what you did, but you know you did something because your communion is severed. And it's not a knowledge of what you did because you don't know what you did. It, it's realizing that our communion is severed that causes you to go and seek forgiveness and seek illumination. <laughs> So it's a good thing that our sin severs our communion with God. If your sin doesn't sever your communion with God, it's probably because you have no communion with God. How do you know the difference between Holy Ghost conviction and demonic or satanic condemnation? When you sin against God and you are walking in a way that is contrary to His Word and His will, when you're grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit, if you're a true child of God, you'll feel conviction. He, he won't let you. He might, he might leave you for a season, but He will not let you remain in, in corruption. But the message that will come to your heart will always be You have sinned. You have brought my temporary displeasure. Return to me. Mm -hmm. That's conviction. Demonic condemnation is you have sinned. God doesn't love you anymore. Run away from Him. Get away from Him. You're unholy. You're wicked. You can't enter into His presence. It's the kind of condemnation that, you know, you sin on Friday and you think, well, I can't go to church on Sunday when the reality is that's exactly where you need to go. Well, I've just committed a sin. How can I go into my study and read my Bible and pray? That's exactly what you need to do. In the same way that a father dealing with his disobedient children, he's a godly father, he doesn't say, you've disobeyed me. Now get out of here. Now go away. He says, you've disobeyed me. There is a punishment for that. There is a a, a real sense in which God punishes his children, but it's never punitive. He spanks his children because he loves them, but it's not a punitive punishment. It's a restorative punishment. It's a punishment that brings us back, not one that drives us away. To amplify this illustration. We've stated that the father loved the son, right? And, and, and the, the difference is that never did Christ personally do anything that would have ever severed that loving communion. He, he enjoyed an unbroken, eternal, holy, blessed communion of love with the father. Did the father love the son during the son's earthly ministry? Absolutely. 
did the Father love the Son on the cross? Absolutely. But when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What was going on in that moment? The Father still loved the Son, but as the Son assumed the sins of his people and was made sin on the cross of Calvary, the holiness of God was repulsed by what it saw on Calvary's cross. And though the Father still loved the Son, in that moment for those six hours of darkness, as the wrath of God was being poured out upon the Son, the loving communion that they once enjoyed was severed. And the love of the Father was not a felt reality in the life of the Son. Hmm. That's what He suffered for you, by the way. He was separated personally on the cross from His Father so that you will never have to be eternally separated from God. So while your disobedience cannot make God love you any less, it may make you feel like He doesn't love you at all. And while your obedience is not the cause of God's love, it is the means through which you experience it. And just think about in your own life, maybe this is too simple, but just think about in your own life those times in which you felt the presence of God and you sensed His love. It wasn't that night when you were getting drunk at a bar somewhere. It was perhaps one morning when, just like every other morning, you got up, you made your coffee, and went to your quiet little place that you go to, and you sat down, and you opened, you opened His Word, and you began to read the Word of God, and then something supernatural started taking place. And it wasn't just words on a page that you were reading, but, but this, this book became a window and you began to look through that window and you saw the one who was speaking to you with an eye of faith. And you could hear him say, I love you. And you said to him, I love you because you first loved me. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. What was the means through which the Lord Jesus Christ experienced God's love during His earthly ministry? It was the obedience to the Father's will. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. After, when did we hear that? We heard that for the first time after the Lord did something that he said was to fulfill all righteousness when he was baptized by John the Baptist. Jesus here in this text imposes on us nothing but the kind of relationship he had with the Father during his incarnation. The secret to Christ abiding in the Father's love was that he abided in the Father's will. The Son of God obeyed the Father And when we obey the Father, we live like true sons of God. The more we sense the love of God, this is the beautiful cycle. The more we sense the love of God, the more fruit we bear. The more fruit we bear, the more we sense the love of God. What did Paul say about his ministry in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14? He's giving an explanation for why he does what he does. Why, why, Paul, do you travel the world, subject yourself to to persecution and beatings and imprisonment and sickness and and even death, ultimately? He says this marvelous statement, one of my favorite statements in the New Testament. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ constrains me. Constrains me. I, I can't not do it. Why, Paul? Because you've got to work to earn your salvation? No! Why, Paul? Because if you don't do this, you'll lose your salvation? No! Why, Paul? So you can do this and God will love you more? No! 
I do this because he does love me. And that love constrains me and compels me. I have to do it. I want to do it. Because he loves me. Paul is not talking about his love for Christ. He's talking about Christ's love for him. He's saying, you know, oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Can you sing that, really, without conviction in your heart? I can't. My love for him is nothing to sing about. (laughs) My love for him is so often cold. My love for him, if I was dependent upon my love for him to keep me saved, I'd never have assurance of my salvation. But his love for me, that's something to write a song about. That's something to sing about. Because He loved me, my Savior died. On a cross was crucified. Because He loved me, He suffered it all because He loved me. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He would give His only Son and make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away and wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory. That's a love that's worth singing about. That's a love that's worth praising God about. That's a love that's worth resting all of my hope in. Because He loved me. He's not going to let my soul be lost. He's not going to let me perish and go to hell. Oh, I, might, I, might sing, I might sing prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Now that's a realistic hymn to sing. But him leaving me, never. Though my love is often cold, he will hold me fast. His love for me. And that, that's the only thing that's really going to produce my love for him. <laughs> Realizing he loves me. Abiding in the love of Christ. Is a love exemplified in the Trinity, experienced in obedience, and thirdly, it's a love that elicits joy. Mm-hmm. Verse 11. These things have I spoken unto you. I love it when the Bible tells us why it's telling us what it's telling us. Jesus, what, why are you telling us this? As you are preparing to be taken away, to be arrested, to be crucified, why are you telling us all of this, Jesus? That my joy might remain in you. And that your joy might be full. Our joy increases and decreases to the extent that we are abiding in his love and experiencing his love through obedience. You want joy? You need to experience the love of God. You want to experience the love of God? Obey the words of Christ. Your joy is directly linked to your obedience. And this is what Jesus has been trying to get us to understand for the last 11 verses. Bear fruit, keep my commandments, obey my word. Why, Lord? So you can be full of joy. That's why. He didn't bring us to Mount Sinai and say, keep my commandments. Why? So I don't cast you out of the land. He's brought us to Mount Zion. To the church of the firstborn. Where we keep His commands and we obey His word. Not for fear of being casted out. Mm -hmm. But so we can experience what it means to be in. This is why... This is why we must preach against sin and unrighteousness, transgressions, violations of the Word of God. Because sin robs people of their only two purposes for existing. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And sin robs God of His glory and it robs man of His joy. 
I pray that you would see that and just hate sin. Just hate it. Hate your own sin. If you want to be full of joy, it begins with a hatred of your own sin, which is the thing that inhibits and robs and steals, reigns on your joy. We need to hate it in our church. We need to hate it in our country. We need to hate seeing professing Christians walk away from the Lord into sin. Why? Because we we want to create a, a church of good little Pharisees where we all just do the right things and so we can save face. No. Because we want them to have joy in Christ. Joy in Christ. I, I understand what people mean when they say this, but you know, you'll hear people say, Well, I don't want to go to a church where the preacher just preaches things to make people happy. Well, let me say this to you. I, I want to preach things to make you happy. But not some sort of worldly, material, fictitious happiness that's based on lies. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. No repentance, no salvation, no conversion, no faith. But true happiness. Happiness that comes from a reality of who God is and what He's done for His people. That's why Jesus is teaching His disciples that you might have joy, that my joy might be in you. Wow. If you want to live a Christian life, you need to have a sound theology of joy. So many Christians live lives of frustration and drudgery because they think obedience and joy are enemies when they're actually the best of friends. (laughs) Obey God and live as you please. Grace is not a license to sin, but grace is a license to pursue your ultimate joy. Because if you really receive the saving grace of God, He is your ultimate joy. For the true Christian, nothing brings them more joy than living in obedience to the God they love. Nothing brings them more misery than sin. Joy and peace in believing don't accompany an inconsistent life. Joy and peace in believing come... And by the power of the Holy Spirit, He changes our desires and He changes our affections. I hope you pray for this. I hope you pray that you grow in this. Or change my desire so that, so that I find joy in pleasing you and I find misery in displeasing you. Right, yes. It's one of the two greatest proofs and evidences of genuine faith when you see someone and they find legitimate joy just in the fact that they're doing something that pleases God. Not because of what they are going to get in the here and now. Or because of what others will say about them. Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you go on version and click the, the check marks? Is it so other people can say, wow, look at them, they read their Bible. Or is it because you find joy in doing the things that Christ commands you to do. So we preach against sin. We preach lives of practical holiness and obedience to Christ's commands. Because purposed holiness is the seed that produces the fruit of joy. God tells us this remarkable statement in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10. He says, Do not sorrow. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The thing that I need most to live the Christian life is the thing I struggle the most to have, the joy of the Lord. The the joy of the Lord is the, the fuel in the tank, if you will. I've got the theology. I know what to do. My struggle is I need joy to propel me to do it. You can only force yourself for so many Sundays in a row to get up and come to church. Eventually, sorrow will overtake you and you will backslide. 
You can only force yourself so many days in a row to get up and read your Bible and pray. Eventually, sorrow will overtake you and will quench your spiritual disciplines. Notice I say that you do sometimes have to force yourself to do those things. It's not, well, I don't feel like it today, so I'm not going to do it. I don't have this overwhelming joy, so I'm not going to do it. No, but if we're going to persevere in these things, if we're going to walk with the Lord all the days of our life and dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that's what we want, right? I think some people, honestly, have made it their life's mission to dwell in the house of the Lord for about eight and a half months. And they accomplish that and they go on to whatever else they want to do with their life. But if you want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, you need joy. You need joy. We receive joy when we realize the love that God had for us in Christ and we experience that joy as we live our lives in submission to His will. And oh, how that would help us in the pits of discouragement in the hour of temptation, on the cusps of burning out, to remember that the God of heaven loves us and has given us all we need to live lives that glorify Him and produce joy. So may God grant us this trilogy of obedience, love, and joy and make them a reality in our Christian lives that we might abide with Christ, bear fruit that glorifies the Father. Our God, we pray to You and we thank You for Your Word. And I'm thankful, Lord, that You not only care merely about the externals of our lives and what we do and what we don't do, but You are intimately concerned with what's going on in our heart. And Your desire for me, I know that Your desire for me is to have fullness of joy, to be happy in my Savior, to rejoice at the sound of what He's done and His will. And I pray, Lord, that You would accomplish that, that You would give us all here today, through the Spirit, the gift of true evangelical joy. A joy that comes because we're abiding in the love of Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Do it for Your honor and glory's sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.